Ah, the faithful remaining. It's good to see everybody. Happy Sabbath afternoon. Was lunch good? Make sure you tell the folks. Uh, I know the Leo family let out and there are others who put on that lunch for everyone. Make sure you tell them thank you. Send them a thank you note if you have the chance to do that because that was one of the best fellowship lunches. And how organized. I mean, getting everybody in and out, just a job well done by everybody involved. We are on to Kern River Valley, which of course is a sister church to Hillcrest here and pastored by our pastoral team, um, Pastor Petch and Pastor Hicks, who's going to be giving the message. The Kern, Kern River Valley Church began in 1962 as a small group of believers gathering in Kernville to worship. They moved to Lake Isabella in 1970 and purchased the property where they are now in 1984. On April 19, 1986, they organized from a company to a church status within the Central California Conference, and they've been with us ever since. The existing sanctuary was built in 2001 and dedicated for use in 2002. The church draws members from all over the Kern River Valley area, some from as far away as Ridgecrest. This year, the church has agreed to take over operations of a local food pantry, God's Storehouse. They are excited to see how the Lord will use this new ministry to prepare Valley residents for the soon return of Christ. Pastor Stephen Hicks has served as the associate pastor for Hillcrest and the Kern River Valley churches since February of last year and is representing the Lake Isabella congregation today. He began his ministry almost seven years ago as a locally hired lay pastor and has served the Central California Conference in one form or another since 2012. Prior to coming to Bakersfield, he and his wife, Marina, lived in the Bay Area for 13 years. Pastor Hicks holds a fine arts degree from New York University and is currently working toward a Master of Theological Studies from La Sierra University. He and Marina have two young daughters, and they are all excited to reach the Area 5 community for Jesus Christ. And we will hear from Pastor Hicks after our special music by Ophelia Miranda. In this very room, 
got enough love for all of us and in this very room there's quite enough joy for all of us there's quite enough hope and quite enough Good afternoon. Thank you, Jimmy, for that lovely introduction. My name is Stephen, and as mentioned, I'm the associate pastor here at Hillcrest, but also up in Lake Isabella at the Kern River Valley Church, and it's my privilege to represent that group this afternoon. So let us pray. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of food. We thank you for the gift of the Sabbath. We thank you for allowing us to be here. Please reward our faith by filling us up with yourself. Bless us in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. <sighs> okay. I've titled this little message, Trusting in the Cross. Welcome back from lunch, by the way. I hope that... Your bellies are full of good food, but not so heavy that it's going to draw your eyes down with the weight of that food. Let's try to stay awake for the gospel this afternoon. Well, I bring greetings from Lake Isabella this afternoon and from the saints who worship there each week, not very many of whom are with us today because of the snow yesterday. They're all stuck up in the mountains, but they, they send their regards. We in Lake Isabella are the eastern vanguard of Area 5. 
God gives his people up in that area ample opportunity to rely on him through the wildfires and the rock slides and the snow and the major road closures that kind of perpetually threaten the entire Kern River Valley area. As I mentioned, very few of them are here because all the roads are closed. And this is the, at least the second major storm in two, three weeks or so. So please pray for them. The hand of God is evident there, despite all of this kind of threatening catastrophe. The hand of God is there. God is good. And it's easy to see him working up in that area. Well, the scripture passage we're going to focus on for the next few minutes is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. This is a familiar text, I hope, to many of us. It plainly declares that salvation is by grace through faith, and specifically not because of our works. Kind of in plain English right there. It tells us that we, as people who are in tune with God's law, nonetheless cannot rely on our merits as measured by that law for salvation because that's simply not how salvation works. Trying to do so would be like trying to get a glass of orange juice by squeezing apples. It simply will not produce the result you're looking for to try to work your way to heaven in that way. And yet, despite the plain wording of these verses, it has been my experience over the years that the plain meaning of this text has not fully registered in the minds of many of our people. Here's an example. I knew an Adventist a number of years ago who told me that he had heard everything there was to hear over all the years he'd been in the church and that he knew it all inside and out. Later on, that same exact person ended up in a class I was teaching, and the question posed to the group was, so what exactly happened at the cross? Apparently, he had heard it all up and down and inside and out, everything there was to hear except the gospel, somehow. We can be experts on all the various trees of Adventism and somehow miss the forest of gospel and grace because we're focusing on all of those trees. And so let's begin this afternoon by identifying this text as a matter of trust. Paul is telling the Ephesians that salvation is an external mechanism. It does not originate in you, the believer nor is it earned by your actions. He's telling us that salvation originates in Jesus Christ and is imparted by Jesus as a free gift. And so salvation is an issue of trust because we must trust Jesus to keep his promises to save us. That's the only way it works. And in the meantime, there is nothing that we can do to influence his decision in our favor. It's all about trust. 
Now, what I have just described is the most basic premise of the gospel. Jesus took our place as condemned sinners. He received his own death as our punishment and then gave us his standing with the Father as our reward for believing in what he's done. It is a substitution of himself for ourselves and vice versa. That's the good news. And this substitution makes for extremely good news. World-changing good news. Because each one of us has fallen so far below the heavenly standard that our only hope of ever achieving it is to receive it as a free gift. I, and I'm using the general I here, I am so corrupt that even my attempts to compensate for the gap between myself and God will fall dreadfully short of meaning anything at all to God. That's the situation we find ourselves in. And so, God's good news is that salvation is freely imparted to us through faith. And my sinful past, or even my sinful present, doesn't determine my salvation because salvation does not come from within me. I am always only one faithful choice away from eternal life. That's the good news. Only Jesus can stand in the way of salvation because only Jesus imparts salvation. Does that make sense? He's got control over the whole thing. It is entirely his game, and therefore, no one else's opinion on the matter is worth even the breath to mention. And so, therefore, we are called to know and to trust the one who controls every part of the plan of salvation, if that's something we want to participate in. Do we, in fact, trust him in that way? Let's better understand this game of salvation, shall we? I'm going to take us to the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. This is the glimpse of the heavenly judgment that we receive in this chapter. The Bible says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousand ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. So here prophecy likens the process of salvation to a courtroom. We must pass a trial in order to receive eternal life. The Ancient of Days that we read about here would be the Father sitting on His throne. And so by all appearances from these two verses, it seems like the Father is the judge. And that would be the correct conclusion except for one thing. Jesus tells us in John 5.22 that the Father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the Son. So, who then is the true judge here? 
It's Jesus. That's exactly right. Who presides over your eternal life and death? It's Jesus Christ. But in a trial situation, the defendant, who would be us, gets a defense attorney who is supposed to plead on the defendant's behalf. So who then is the defense attorney when it comes to the trial of salvation? 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, My children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. When we sin, friends, we come under condemnation of the transgressed law. And our defense advocate comes into the picture right away and fights to have us declared not guilty of that transgression. Jesus races to our defense. Which, I think it's important to note, is quite a different picture than we get throughout the world and even from many churches who like to teach us that Jesus is just kind of itching for an excuse to condemn us for breaking the law. I wasn't raised an Adventist. I was raised in churches who subscribe more to the idea that Jesus is out to get you. So Jesus, we are learning, is the judge and, at the same time, the defense attorney kind of sounds like the odds are stacked in favor of those in Christ. Amen? <laughs> but that's not even the whole story. The news gets better because the very next verse, 1 John 2 verse 2, says, and Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. He's also the propitiation he is the thing that makes atonement and restores favor with the Father. That's what propitiation means. Inside of the courtroom analogy that we're exploring here, that means he would be the evidence in your favor. Ha <laughs> ha! That which satisfies the law's claims over you and exonerates you from all the charges. So Jesus is the judge. He's the defense attorney. And he's the evidence. <laughs> Every single part of this process is fulfilled by Jesus. So where do you fit into all of this? Since you are not Jesus. Well, you're the defendant in theory, but that doesn't exactly fit. Because a defendant in an earthly court gets to testify in his or her own defense. Do you get to plead your own case before God? Hmm. And by that I mean do you actually get to go and be in that heavenly courtroom? Your sinful flesh would burn up in the presence of God if you somehow tried to do that. This judgment began in 1844 and it will end before Christ's return, which means that you are physically present for exactly 0% of the trial for your eternal life. 
So how much do you figure into the judgment of your own life? If you are not the judge, and you are not the attorney, and you're not physically present, and you're not even the evidence. You're not the evidence. And I'm going to say that a third time so we get it. You are not the evidence. That means none of your charity or lifestyle choices or good works stand as evidence to clear the accusation of sin. Remind me from the scriptures we've looked at, what is the propitiation? It's Jesus. You factor into your own judgment only to the extent that you either choose Jesus or you don't. That's it. In his own words, he tells us in John 3, verses 18 and 19, he who believes in me, Jesus, is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So in summary of this little statement here, Jesus is telling us that if we realize that Jesus is more beautiful than anything else that has ever been or will ever be, then there is no condemnation. if we decide that the world is more attractive, then we're condemned already because the whole world is condemned by sin. We've in fact condemned ourselves in that situation by rejecting God's way out of the universal condemnation, which would be Jesus. Saying, God, no, it's okay, I don't want it. <laughs> I like all this mess and death and chaos instead. Do you see why salvation is an issue of trust? You either trust that Jesus is going to save you simply because he promised that he would, or you spend your life trying to convince him that he should save you. The Bible tells us we are saved by grace through faith. Grace is the unmerited favor of God given to us because we believe in what Jesus has done and is doing and is promised to do soon, which is to come and gather us home. Do you believe all of that, church? I like the amens, but I am going to note that it wasn't the whole room and it kind of rolled slowly and quietly across the room. Do we believe that? Church, do you believe that Christ will call your name on the day that he appears simply because you trust that he meant it when he said, I will come again to receive you unto myself so that where I am there you may be also? You are saved by grace, which means you are saved because Jesus wants to save you. I know for certain, let's approach this from a different angle, I know for certain that I am not saved by anything that I do because 
someone out there does any given thing that I do better than I do it. Right? And so, if God accepts me because of something that I do, he is then obligated to accept everyone else who does that same thing as good or better than I do it. And did you know that God expects the best of everything? He is a perfect God of holiness, and he wants the best. But I am not the best at anything, which means if that were the paradigm, I don't stand a chance and never will. And so this working, achieving salvation does not become the mechanism by which we are saved. That's just not how God has chosen to play this game. We are saved because Jesus wants to save us, period. And the only evidence that we have of his desire to save us is his promise that he would. And, of course, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which should be a dynamic force in our lives to remind us that we are, in fact, sealed by God and walking in the Spirit. But that's not tangible either. I can't grab that. I can't show you that I have it. So all I really have as evidence that Jesus wants to save me is my faith that he tells me the truth in the Bible. Here's an illustration. My oldest daughter, who is pushing six years old now, she seems to hate it when I am on the phone, and always has. She's gotten better at letting me be on the phone when she's around, as she's kind of gotten a little bit older, but even still today, she doesn't like it, because if daddy's on the phone, then daddy's not playing with her. So just, she doesn't like that. So she will typically, even today, when I'm on the phone, she will try to talk and engage with me until I promise to come play with her as soon as I'm off the phone. Then, with that promise, she usually is pretty good at, you know, quitting the active destruction of my phone call. <laughs> she usually will quiet down and leave me be. But... <laughs> But it doesn't exactly always work out because even as she has taken some distance and left me alone, she will frequently just kind of sit there outside the door of my office or sometimes even inside my office and say to me, are you done yet? Are you done? Are you going to be done soon? <laughs> One time she wrote me a note and slid it under the door. The note said, <laughs> the note said, I thought you said you were almost done. <laughs> she does not trust that I will come back to her when I said that I would. She seems to think that she needs to keep reminding me of what I promised her, to keep prompting me to think of being done with the phone call to keep prompting me to alert her that I am in fact done with the phone call. She doesn't seem to trust that it's going to happen unless she gets involved. And you know what? It's pretty cute, actually, until it's not. Because it can be rather annoying 
especially if one of you is on the phone with me and you need to have a talk with me and she's not letting me, right? It's annoying for everybody. It's annoying because there is no reason for this behavior. I have already promised her that I will come. And I meant it. I will, in fact, come back as soon as I said that I would. And her distracting me along the way delays my ability to return. You following my illustration here? How many of us do that same thing to Jesus all the time? We know what Jesus said. We've read it in the Gospels a thousand times. We know that he promised to return and gather us all to heaven. But perhaps we don't really fully believe that. We know that Christ made a promise to redeem us and then sealed that promise in his own blood. But perhaps we don't trust that his word is good enough. And so we keep trying to add to it. We keep trying to say to God, hey, yeah, but look at this thing I do. Look at this thing that I do for you. If I am inclined to disbelieve Christ as my propitiation, if I'm inclined to not fully think that it's all about Jesus and not at all about me, then chances are I am very likely to be inclined much more towards my own works. I'm comfortable claiming my works, my tithe, my status, my church office, my eloquence, my generosity, my temperance, my education, my whatever as the propitiation for my sin. All the things that make me so-called good. I can control those things. When taking stock of my life in light of eternity, I can feel good about the good that I do and confident in the person that it all makes me appear that I am until I remember that the measurement for heaven is Jesus and not me. We can feel great about what we've accomplished even in the name of God until we realize that the scorecard has not me on it anywhere. God takes away every avenue by which we might earn ourselves a place in heaven so that we may realize and develop a reliance upon Him through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to give you, I'm going to close with some spirit of prophecy here. Let her drive this point home in conclusion. Faith and Works, page 25. The Sister White tells us, We hear so many things preached in regard to the conversion of the soul that are not the truth. Men are educated to think that if a man repents, he shall be pardoned, supposing that repentance is the way, the door, into heaven. That there is a certain assured value in repentance to buy for him forgiveness. But can a man repent of himself? No more than he can pardon himself. Tears, sighs, resolutions, all these are but the proper exercise of the faculties God has given to man and the turning from sin in the amendment of a life which is God's. Where is the merit in the man to earn his salvation or to place before God something that is valuable and excellent? 
Can an offering of money, houses, lands place yourself on the deserving list? Impossible, she says. Goes on to say, there is danger in regarding justification by faith as placing merit on faith. When you take the righteousness of Christ as a free gift, you are justified freely through the redemption of Christ. What is faith? The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It is an assent of the understanding to God's words which binds the heart in willing consecration and service to God who gave the understanding, who moved on the heart, who first drew the mind to view Christ on the cross of Calvary in the first place. Faith is rendering to God the intellectual powers, abandonment of the mind and will to God, and making Christ the only door to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Friends, we are not permitted by God to rest our merits on anything at all except Jesus Christ, the Lord, our righteousness. Do you trust Jesus today? Here is my closing piece of Sister White for you. Christ, for our sakes, became poor, that through his poverty we might be made rich. And any works that man can render to God will be far less than nothingness. My requests are made acceptable only because they are laid upon Christ's righteousness. The idea of doing anything to merit the grace of pardon is fallacy from beginning to end. And look how she, we've seen this quote a few times already, heard it a few times today. Lord, in my hand, no price I bring, simply to thy cross. I cling. Do you trust God today? Do you trust Jesus to keep his promise to you today? I'll leave you with that as we pray one final time together. Lord, help us to trust you. Father in heaven, our hearts are so beclouded with this world. We are so used to being skeptical of our neighbors that frequently we become skeptical of you. And Father, on behalf of those who are gathered here and behalf of those who already went home and behalf of those who didn't even come, I'm asking you to extend your grace and mercy to us and teach us how to trust you. Teach us to rest everything we are in everything you are and conform us to yourself by your matchless love and amazing grace. I pray in the name of Jesus for all of these things. Bless us in that holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you. May God bless the rest of your afternoon. Powerful message, huh? Um, it has been wonderful getting to spend time with all of you, and we want to invite you tonight to gym night to continue that time together, um, playing games over at the school gym at 6.30. And also, um, I don't know how many of you grabbed a hold of this paper. You guys see it? It's nice and bright. Um, on February 12th, um, as many of you know, we've, I've been working with a gentleman named David Obermiller, who's an organic farmer up in Fresno, 
on a school garden. And it has been very um, much a learning experience for me as well. And I've been learning a lot. And as we have dug with the help of Josh Garcia, 21 holes for trees. And they were deep holes. They were three feet deep by three feet wide because we want to do the Ellen White planting method. And we'd love to share with you how we're going to do it. So we have planned a seminar for February 12th, um, actually two seminars on that day. The first one will be from 9 to 12, and it's a spring gardening seminar. Um, we'll get to cover how to plant potatoes um, and different other spring vegetables in the garden, and you'll get to have some classroom time and hands-on experience. And then we'll have a lunch break, and then around 2 to 5, we will do the fruit tree planting seminar. And it will be really exciting to be able to not only plant them in the school garden, but get to teach you guys how to plant them as well. Um, we hope that you will join us. And there are more flyers out in the foyer on the podium if you want to get one. Thank you to Pastor Hicks for a powerful message. That was, that was incredible. Um, we move forward in our program to the Asian American Church and the Oildale Church, which are both pastored by Pastor Joshua Mira. And many of you know the Asian American Fellowship Church came out of Hillcrest. In August 2001, Pastor Abel Pangain from Fresno was involved with the Adventist Christian Training for Service, also being held in Bakersfield. He was doing door-to-door -door visitations when he discovered several Asians, the majority of them Filipinos, who were meeting in quite a few ministry groups of different denominations. Many of these people actually attended the evangelistic series that had been conducted by Pastor Brian McMahon of Amazing Facts. It was after these meetings that Pastor Pangain's conversation with Asian Adventists sparked the interest in finding out how to reach out to the other Asian people residing in Bakersfield. Pastor Yves Monnier, a few of you may have heard of him, of Hillcrest Church was consulted and he saw the potential merits of cultural familiarity in facilitating successful soul winning. The request for a church plant was presented to the church board and after two meetings of deliberation resulted in the approval to start planning the process. Pastor Pangain conducted a meeting in the Pacific Health Education Center where approximately 50 people attended and many were impressed to form a church. This was the birth of the Asian Adventist Fellowship under the district of Hillcrest Church. In August of 2014, the church moved from Bakersfield Adventist Academy, where it had been worshiping for multiple years, to a purchased church building on East Brundage Lane. Later that year, the name Asian American Seventh-day Adventist Church was officially adopted. Today, the church has over 115 members and continues to grow. The Oildale Church was started in 1985 when Elder Limon, the pastor of the Bakersfield Hillcrest SDA Church, asked if his congregation if anyone living north of the Kern River would be interested in starting a new church. There was a positive response. On April 20, 1985, the new company of believers met for the first time at the Rasmussen Senior Citizens Center. Later, Pastor Limon called for a meeting to be held in this church library to discuss the possibility of purchasing a small church. 
Some very giver, giving members came up with the full amount, and the purchase was made. On June 22, 1985, Pastor Mike Peterson joined the members for his first Sabbath service with them. And on March 1, 1986, the Oildale Company became, became the 109th church in the Central California Conference. It's pretty neat to see how a lot of these churches actually originated out of Hillcrest. And that is certainly the New Testament design for how the church is supposed to grow. Pastor Mira asked me to keep his bio very brief. He wants you to know he's married to his wife, Yen. He loves his daughter, Nadia, and he loves to share the good news of salvation. And I will add that I love to golf with Pastor Mira because he's really, really good at it. Please welcome Pastor Miro after our special music. pastor, you realize that every church you go to, every congregation you go to, it builds up 
who you are, and it makes us stronger. We are um, indeed blessed and privileged to be able to uh, serve all of you as pastors in Area 5. Um, it is a miracle that we even get to this position, in fact. Um, if we could change the screen over. Well, how many of you have been blessed by the messages? Oh, I've been truly just lifted up, and I'm so excited that um, I really want to go out and share this message with the people I meet. And I just want to, first of all, want to say, anyone here wear a tie today, or am I the only one? Or, or a bow tie? Man, I'm an odd person, aren't I? <laughs> out of 500 people, I'm the only one who wore a bow tie. Anyway, praise the Lord for that. Let's have a short prayer before we begin. Um, Father in heaven, at this time, I just need you to empty me of self and speak. We thank you so much for all the messages today. I pray that this one would be coupled by the Holy Spirit power. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible speaks of the Apostle Paul as a man of academic excellence. A doctor of the law well-versed in the social sciences, capable of standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with the most affluent philosophers and rhetoricians of his day. However, Paul quickly learned that his powerful arguments and elevated speeches only brought more question and debate. When he presented the gospel before the court of the Areopagus, Paul met logic with logic, science with science. Those present were dumbfounded. His words could not be refuted, yet his efforts bore little fruit. Only few accepted the gospel invitation, and Paul, yes, Paul himself, became discouraged. Logic led Paul to believe rhetoric would be the most successful way to reach the people of Athens. I mean, this was the home of the great Plato and Aristotle. The most brilliant minds in history were seen walking through the Roman Agora, Tower of the Winds, Eleusinian, and Parthenon. Ancient scholars roamed these dusty streets, but Paul was mistaken. God would not have the pure gospel tainted by the pomposity of human wisdom. This failure led Paul to adjust his evangelistic blueprint. Instead of preaching elaborate arguments and discussions of theories, he would strain every faculty to magnify the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The message of the cross would be the golden thread woven up and down through and through all his letters and exhortations. Nothing would take precedence over this central theme. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes to the members at Corinth these words, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul ensured, he ensured Every teaching, every doctrine must lead the hearers to the Lamb slain from the, foundation of the uh, from the foundation of the world. And if a teaching didn't point people to the power of the cross, it would only bring contempt to the character of God. You have studied, right? 
the Corinthian church was affected by relational division. Throughout the epistle, Paul puts emphasis on the church's need for solidarity. Many issues were pulling them away from each other, yet only one message could reunite them. And that message, Christ and Him crucified. Any message that minimizes the importance of the cross is a false gospel. And these messengers of this strange fire are popping up everywhere in our churches and our schools, sowing poisonous seeds of pernicious weeds spreading like wildfire. What is it? It's a deceptive form of behavior modification and elitist empowerment. I'm giving this message to caution you so you can be awakened to the dangers of this deceptively malicious teaching. Those handling the torch of this anti-gospel have three main leveraging abilities that help them influence people. Number one, they're persuasive. Two, they hold prominence. And three, they emphasize perfection. Often those who are championing this anti-gospel are persuasive, which is number one. They have winsome personalities. Their presence draws immediate sympathy. They have a charm in their voice that breaks down inhibitions, and their smiles radiate with friendliness. Their charisma has a strange power, and where they go, multitudes follow. Others who champion this anti-gospel have prominence. They work hard and are very dedicated. They do their jobs well. You can say they're perfectionists. Their peers and authorities trust them so much because their works show apparent success. These false messengers are strongly protected, so their teachings are not strictly monitored. They are free to inculcate a Christ-less form of righteousness, and many a youth are led astray. The third and final indicator of those championing this anti-gospel theme is an emphasis on perfection. You might ask me, Pastor, what's wrong with that? God wants us to be holy, right? My answer is yes. God demands perfection, but there's no work we can do to qualify. No matter how hard you and I try, we'll never fulfill the demands of God's law because, number one, the law demands perfect harmony to its infinite standard, and number two, it requires an eternal death for transgression. Anyone here meet those demands? Let me see your hand. No one brave enough because there is no one here. Only one has fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. It is none other then Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Savior. There's only one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Salvation is in the name of Jesus. These false messengers have such a bewitching force. Their words invoke strong urges to reform, only evoking the arm of flesh in an attempt to glorify God. But this is merely a form of manipulative religiosity. Their words appeal to the base natures of man by leveraging our insecurities, like our pride and our fears. You may hear them say things like, we need to get deeper in the word, brother. 
We don't want to get stuck on the cross like our evangelical friends. We are peculiar people. It's time to get off the milk and get on the meat. The cross is just a small part. There's so much more. And sincere people are believing the lie. Friends, just as the planets orbit around the sun, so likewise all scripture orbits around the cross. The cross isn't an individual doctrine. It's the penultimate theme of every doctrine. Amen? In the Signs of the Times, April 18, 1906, paragraphs 4 and 5, Ellen White writes these things. The infinite mercy and love of Jesus, the sacrifice made in our behalf, calls for the most serious and solemn reflection. We should dwell upon the character of our dear Redeemer and Intercessor, we should meditate upon the mission of him who came to save his people from their sins. The theme of redemption is the one that angels desire to look into. It will be the what? The science and the song of the redeemed throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. That doesn't sound like milk to me. That sounds like meat. Another identifying mark of these false teachers is their use of scare tactics. They love to preach perfection mingled with judgment. They say things like, if you don't strive for perfection, you'll be lost in the judgment. So you, you better get to work. Try harder. Strain every effort to be like Jesus. But, but really, be careful because you may live a perfect life all the way, but you'll commit one sin and lose everything. Scare tactics. Another one being taught recently, I've heard a lot of, is you better get ready. One day, we will have to live without Jesus as mediator. You'll have to be perfect by then, so start now. Don't dishonor God by living unholy. You have to shape up or ship out. God will forsake you. Friends, I don't know what Bible they're reading, but mine says in Hebrews 7.25 that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. And that even if Jesus does change his garment and put on his kingly robes, he will still be with his people through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that's what needs to be emphasized. All these teachings are designed to turn our focus off our Savior and onto ourselves. It's no longer what God must do for us, but what we must do for God. Scare tactics. And friends, take great caution when someone uses a compilation of short Ellen White statements to support their views. Because these false teachers are trying to make Mrs. White sound just like them. They present her as a gloomy, hardline, judgment-centered messenger of doom. But she was far from that. She was a patient and loving woman. She was firm in principle, yes, but she never pushed her convictions on other people. She enjoyed life to its fullest, always seeking to lead the people she met to her Savior. She even had moments of uncontrollable laughter. Mrs. White was a lady you would have loved to be around, you would have loved to fellowship with, you would have loved to go to her home and sit at her feet and listen to her beautiful, precious words. Any teaching that leverages human fear or pride is not from God, but from the enemy. 
God leads by drawing us. Satan leads by manipulation and coercion. God desires a response by love. Satan desires a response by fear or reward. The enemy of God and man is trying to minimize our estimation of the cross for one purpose. To keep us divided as a church. Let's take a closer look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. Now, now there's a Greek manuscript variant here for the word testimony. Certain manuscripts replace the word testimony with to mysterion to theu, or the mystery of God. Uh, uh, and actually, the word mystery here is more fitting when you study the context of the passage. So what is this mystery? Verse 2 gives us the clue. First, we know Paul proclaimed the mystery of God to the Corinthian believers in verse 1. And in verse 2, the source of this mystery is what? Christ and him crucified. So Paul proclaims the mystery of God in verse 1. And in verse 2, he presents the subject matter of this mystery, which is Christ and him crucified. Question. Is there anywhere in Paul's writings where the mystery of God and the crucifixion of Christ are contextualized together? Yes, there is. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, we find this mystery to be the assimilation of the Gentiles into the family of God. But notice what brings about this unification of God's people. I'm reading from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. Powerful verses right here. Read with me. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes far off, speaking of the Gentiles, are made near by the blood of Jesus. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. Now here's the verse. Listen closely. And that he, Jesus, might reconcile, bring together both, both unto God in one body by the what? Through what means? The cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Friends, the only remedy for the fractures in our churches is the power of the cross of Christ, which, which actually reconciles us both to God and to each other, thus making us one. This is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, But God forbid that I should glory except where? In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're teaching the state of the dead, make sure it points to Christ. If you're teaching the Sabbath, make sure it magnifies Christ. If you're teaching hellfire, the nature of man, or the sanctuary, do all in your power to direct people to Christ. And no, no, this doesn't work. Talking about the, the teaching of the sanctuary for 55 minutes about all the details and intricacies. Oh, look what I found here. And then tacking Jesus on at the end is not good enough. Jesus must be the golden thread woven up and down through and through 
all our teachings and exhortations. Amen? Jesus is not merely the cherry on top. He's the whole cake. I love this quote from Testimony for the Church, volume 9, page 462. We see in the midst of the throne one bearing in hands and feet and side the marks of the suffering endured to reconcile man to God and God to man. Matchless mercy reveals to us a Father, infinite, dwelling in light, unapproachable, yet receiving us to himself through what? Through the merits of his Son. The cloud of vengeance which threatened only misery and despair in, re in the reflected light from the cross reveals the writing of God. Live, sinner, live, ye penitent and believing souls, live. I have paid a ransom for you. Be prudent on your theological journey. Satan has his agents mingling among us. Don't let your pride and fear overshadow the rays of light shining down from the cross. Don't believe the lies that the message of the cross is overplayed. Stand up against the deceptively manipulative forms of revival. Stand up against the scare tactics and Christless urgings to strive for personal glory. Stand up against the hardline works-based forms of religion taught in our churches and in our schools. Stand up against everything that tries to minimize our estimation of the cross. Stand up! I will invite you all to stand up and take a two-minute break, stretch. We're about halfway through our afternoon program, so greet your neighbors. Say hello, and in about two minutes, we will resume. about Samuel King? Yeah. Okay. And then you do the bio, yeah. then we have... Follow the script, buddy. I haven't seen... <laughs> I created the script. <laughs> I haven't seen either two of those people, the Koreans or... I haven't or... either. They're pastors here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure they're...
All right, if everyone could begin finding their seats, we will resume the rest of our afternoon program. Shall we rise as we take our team song again at the cross? A lost and demon saints with heaven mother's hand Would hear the God of sacred head for someone such as I At the cross, at the cross, and the cross of that life And the burden of my heart rode away it was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Was it for crimes that I have done, who saw that on the tree? Amazingly, the grace unknown, and love beyond degree. At the cross, at the cross, where I was all the light, and the body of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. But doves that breed once everywhere, that dead on the Cross and the cross where I was on the light, and the burden of my heart rode away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all that day. Amen. everybody still have your tickets? Don't lose them. Remember, at the end of our program this afternoon, we will be giving away two special editions of Steps to Christ and the Bible that was printed in 1844. So make sure you hold on to those tickets. I also bring you greetings today from San Joaquin Community Hospital, which is your Adventist hospital here in Bakersfield in Kern County. For those of you who don't know, I serve as the Executive Director of Marketing and Communications for our hospital, and I just wanted to give you a few updates on the healthcare ministry um, that we are performing every day um, here in Bakersfield and throughout Kern County. There's been some really exciting things that have been happening. Um, in the past few months, we've named a new CEO, Charlotte Briggs, who was recently our Chief Operating Officer, is now our CEO, and we're excited about her leadership and the dynamic skill set that she brings to our hospital. 
One of the neatest things, I think, in the history of the hospital is about to happen. And I can't totally spoil it for you because we haven't even told all of our employees yet. Um, but quick foreshadowing here, this Wednesday we're going to be making a major announcement um, pertaining to how the hospital will go forward in the community. And it involves a brand change, a name change, and let's just say the name Adventist will be much more prominent in the name going forward. And this is a really, really positive thing for the community. Um, in many ways, the healthcare providers there are just as much a representative are just as much representatives of the Adventist message as any of us as members of the church are. And so this is a really exciting thing. Look for it. You will undoubtedly see it on the news um, on Wednesday in the paper. You can check out our social media pages or our website. We'll have it all available to you there. And I'm very, very excited about it. Along with this brand change that we're going to be undergoing, we have a new mission statement. And this, this mission statement hasn't been shared publicly anywhere yet, but if you can promise to keep it a secret, I want to share it with you this afternoon for the sake of our discussion. I know we have a few employees out there, so consider this a little bit of a preview. Our new mission statement is living God's love by inspiring health, wholeness, and hope. And I am just so thrilled about this mission statement. Um, our last mission statement was really good too. It was sharing God's love by providing physical, mental, and spiritual healing. It's an awesome mission statement, but I love the switch from sharing to living. That feels really neat to me, and I love those three words, health, wholeness, and hope. It really summarizes what we are all about in the Adventist healthcare ministry. And I want to just briefly um, share some things, some accomplishments over the last year or so that highlight those three three words. Obviously we're a healthcare organization. Our first priority is to make sure that people when people come to us that we do everything we possibly can to restore them to good health. Now that doesn't just mean physical health, but certainly that's a big part of it. And you'll be happy to know that recently, and we're talking last week, we found out that for the third year in a row, San Joaquin Community Hospital was named as a distinguished hospital for excellence and quality of care. And that ranking puts us in the top 5% in the nation for overall quality of care. We're the only hospital in Kern County to ever receive that award, and it's been given by Health Grades, um, which tracks you can't opt out of health grades. This isn't an award you can pay to be a part of or anything like that. They measure about 4,500 hospitals nationwide every year. And so for the past three years, San Joaquin has been named in the top 5%. And so you know that when you come to us, you're going to get the best quality health care available in Kern County. And that should be reassuring that, you know, James White, one of my favorite quotes from James White, he said in 1877, it is a disgrace to do a second-class job in anything. All of our institutions shall be number one. And we really ascribe to that level of thinking, that we just can't, you know, we can't just, you know, prayer is important, but we can't just pray and hope that we improve in all the aspects of our care. Our hospital is covered in prayer, but we're also doing all of the things, the best practice the best practices, the, the new technology, all of that to ensure that patients get the best quality of care when they come to the hospital. So that's health. We're providing good health care. Wholeness. Um, you know, this has been a hallmark of Adventist health since it started in Battle Creek, Michigan in the 1860s. The idea of body, mind, and spirit 
physical, mental, and spiritual healing. And I want to share with you a little anecdote about, um, about a new community that has come into Adventist Health. Some of you might have known, and some of you I'm sure don't know, that Adventist Health is now operating the hospital up in Tehachapi. And we have a hospital up there now, Adventist Health Tehachapi Valley. And they are going to be moving into a brand new hospital sometime this summer that we will run. It is, it is now a sister hospital to San Joaquin here in Kern County. Now, prior to Adventist Health operating the hospital, which started officially on November 1st, um, it was operated by the healthcare district in Tehachapi. Essentially, it was a government-run hospital, right? And so we have all these staff members that on October 31st, went to work as government employees, and the next day they woke up and they were employees of Adventist Health. Quite the switchover, right? And I was talking with the chief nursing officer up there who's been hired into Adventist Health to continue to move forward in that role, and she's been there for 20 years. And she told me, for as long as I've been here, staff have always wanted to pray with patients, to live out their faith and to provide that spiritual um, healing that all of us as healthcare workers innately know is a part of the care process. But because we're a government facility, we weren't able to do that. And it's been such a joy to watch our staff embrace what it means to now be a faith-based hospital and to have the opportunity to live out their faith, not have to check their faith at the door when they come to work. And that's been an amazing thing to see and so that same kind of spirit is alive in all of our organizations at San Joaquin, in our cancer center, and now in our new hospital up in Tehachapi Valley. So um, you can rest assured that when you come to one of our hospitals, you've already been prayed for. And the staff that are taking care of you have already been prayed for. And pray be as groups um, and pray together every day. Prayer is an important part of our organization. And then I want to leave you with the word hope. I think, I think this word more than any is a, a symbol of the shift that we see in healthcare as we're trying to better meet the needs of the community. Gone are the days where acute care hospitals are the center of the healthcare universe. It really has shifted to looking at the patient as the center of the healthcare universe. That it's not about the hospital, it's about the people that we serve. And therefore, it's not just about the people inside of our walls that are receiving care. It's about the community, all of the people that need to be served in our community. And there's a number of things that our hospital does to reach out into the community and serve people that may never receive care inside of our walls. And one of the neatest things that we have a chance to do is we participate and partner with the mission at Kern County, which is one of the homeless centers here in town. And every Christmas, we put on a Christmas dinner for all of their residents. And we put up a big tent, and many of you might have seen um, pictures on Facebook and such from the Christmas events we do for our employees. We try to go and put that on for people that aren't gonna get a Christmas dinner. And we provide all the food, uh, many of our staff go out and serve, provide the facilities, the tent, and you know, it's just an incredible opportunity to be able to do that. It's always the first Tuesday before Christmas. And this is like the sixth or seventh year we've had an opportunity to do it. Just did it, um, so it's on the top of my mind. And it's a great way to provide hope to people. You know, the holidays can be really fun, they can be really rough if you're down on your luck, right? 
and it's amazing to see the smiles on people's faces just from having that hot meal that they may not otherwise have gotten. Being able to come into a tent and see a Christmas tree and feel like that's a little part of their own Christmas experience, and it's probably the only true Christmas experience they will get that year. So it's really amazing to be part of that. We've extended that, and now we provide food um, every fourth Tuesday of the month for the mission at Kern County, their Tuesday night ministry that they have there. Um, anybody's welcome to come and volunteer for that. So I would encourage you, if you'd like to come out and just serve Tuesday nights at the mission, um, there always are opportunities for volunteers. It's very safe for children. So I've been out a number of times on Tuesdays there, and it's a really great opportunity to serve there at the mission and, and be reminded of how blessed we all are and extend that to people that you know, may feel like you know, God has forgotten about them. So this new mission statement, health, wholeness, and hope, it's something that we're embracing, and it's something that I hope that as your Adventist hospital, you will pray for us, that you'll pray for all of our staff. We have over 2,000 staff members there, you know, the majority, the vast majority of which are not Seventh-day Adventists. So please, please, please pray for them, and there's an opportunity, too, to love some of those folks into the church especially as they are representing the Adventist message here in Kern County. So I want to leave you with that and make sure you know that you have a hospital here that is um, committed to the Adventist message. And I think that's a really powerful thing when we have, in a community, we're very blessed, dynamic churches, an amazing school, and a hospital. And those are really the three entities that you know, exist in Adventism to reach people for Jesus Christ. And that's a really cool thing. Our fifth message today is from the Bakersfield Korean Church. Now, the history of this church, a few people started gathering at Elder Dong Hee Seo's house, and the Central California Conference designated Pastor Chun So On as the pioneer pastor. Hillcrest Church decided to rent the land to them for $1 for 99 years so they could build a church building. It's a pretty good rate, I would say. Can I get a mortgage like that anywhere? That would be pretty good. A group of 100 builders from Maranatha completed the church building in one month. In addition, Young Nam Beck and Jiang Lim Kim donated a house for the pastor's family. The church has been to the Philippines and Honduras for mission trips, and some of the youth members have participated in the Korean-American Youth Adventist Missionary Movement to serve as missionaries for Peru, Mexico, and Korea. The church also sponsors mission cell groups that include computer classes, healthy food classes, a marathon group, and a Bible study group. Every year, the church provides people in the local area with free flu shots and free medical checkups and treatments. And from the church, they'd like to ask for prayer that they continue to be the pathway, a pathway of God for reaching people with the three angels' messages. The pastor of that church is Young Jin Kim, and he was a graduate in 2005 um, of La Sierra University with a master's in divinity. Prior to that, and I apologize my pronunciation on these, I apologize if I don't get the schools right, um, graduated in 1992 from Sam Yuk University Seminary in Korea with a master of arts in theology.